0: Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing?
1: I am good. I feel like it's just, you know, same soup reheated essentially because (laughs) we're not really doing
0: anything. No, but so much has been going on.
1: (laughs) Yes, but like... Can you imagine doing this year, this lockdown, without all of the technology at our fingertips
0: that we do that? Oh, yeah, that would be, well, I guess you'd just play billiards.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd be watching my VHS copy of The Princess Bride again.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think human beings find a way to entertain themselves.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, it's true. But I am very glad that uh, technology is making that slightly easier this week, at least.
0: So much has happened since we last recorded. A lot has happened. Mm-hmm.
1: So what have been your top things?
0: Okay, so the top things. The Sainsbury's advert. Oh God, yeah. That was a big thing. Big thing. Yeah, so basically Sainsbury's released a Christmas advert with a black family and people were not happy.
1: Which is so weird because... I mean, obviously, it's not weird. Racism is racism. Racists are always going to racist. But the ad itself is so, like, it's it's bland. Do you know what I mean? As in, they did three adverts, and the content of all of the adverts is essentially the same. It's families talking about Christmas. It's families talking about what they're going to eat at Christmas. So the reaction was so disproportionate for the content of what the advert was. Anyone could have been saying those words. It was just that it was Black people saying them.
0: I was even shocked. I was shocked at the reaction to just the Black family talking about hanging out at Christmas and how offensive people found this. Mm -hmm. It's gravy. Phoebe, give (laughs) us some info. Give us some intel. Give us some insight.
1: I know. Can you imagine? No, but I did think that that was so... You know, I think that there is this, quote unquote, the liberal agenda. And I've heard people, I've heard people that I know say things like, oh, it's almost like, you know, it's not okay to be white anymore. But it's so objectively neutral as an ad. Like one of the things that I did think is that I'm real mushy and I love Christmas adverts. I love the John Lewis advert. I love like a good reason to cry at Christmas adverts, so for anyone else who's listening who is like, oh, yeah, that's a bit of me, I can recommend that there are two adverts that have made me cry so far this year, and that's been the Woody's advert in Ireland, and it's been the Super Value advert, again, which is just talking about, like, family, Christmas, very emotional, tugs on the heartstrings. I can't work out how you can see something as objectively neutral as a family talking about gravy over the phone and really make that into... Unbelievable. I can't believe what's being shoved down our throats.
0: But I guess it's very, very important for people to accept what's happening. A black family talking about Christmas is not neutral. A black family celebrating Christmas is seen as political. Right.
1: And I can't work out how... Say if it were you and I now, and I was trying to say to you, no, 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 it it is. It's a political statement. The second you asked me how, what would my possible response be?
0: Yeah, but I think just like how, you know, they say Black Lives Matter is a political statement. I don't see saying Black Lives Matter as a political statement. Mm I see that as like, yeah, of course, I don't really see why it's political. But there is something about society where saying Black Lives Matter or showing a Black family is seen as political it's seen as virtue signaling
1: I think that you're right I think that you know there are always going to be a strain of people who see it as virtue signaling and what's so unfortunate is that the whole thing has missed you completely you know you what talk- is
0: virtue signaling though what does that mean
1: genuinely you might as well ask me what gluten is I have no idea
0: <laughs> I actually don't know and I hear
1: people say it all the time and I go like oh you know yeah oh quote-unquote virtue signaling is it just that you're trying to appear woke? Like the word woke has been politicised.
0: Yeah, it's all a bit confusing. So personally for me, I think it's better the devil you know. Mm. So, you know, we're at the point now where people try to act like there's no racism in the UK. Everything is good in the UK. But what we saw that Sainsbury's ad is that everything is not good in the UK that's an advert on television and it's sending people into a fit Mm -hmm. and how does that translate into how people are treated on a day-to-day basis it's not isolated everything Mm -hmm. is linked and so I see it an opportunity to have a genuine discussion what is this about what's going on why do you feel triggered um, by this because the comments were very very hateful
1: and the comments were so hateful what I I don't want to be like, I was perplexed. But what I found, I guess, puzzling is that, as I said at the beginning of this episode, the script itself is so neutral that it could have been my family having that same discussion. Do you know what I mean? So it's almost as though what you had the opportunity to see there is that, oh, yeah, like Christmas is Christmas. Everyone's having a conversation about gravy and ham and roasties or whatever the case may be. But where you said, you know, it's become a political statement. The actual only political aspect is their skin colour. And what has happened is that racists have politicised that. Or people Mm -hmm. who are so fragile in their own white identity have politicised that. And it's just so strange because I can't imagine caring that much. Do you know what I mean? And I know that that's a flippant way of putting it. But as in, I genuinely can't imagine seeing an advert of any description I'm thinking, I can't believe I've not been represented. My physicality hasn't been represented in
0: that ad. Mm. But I think it just shows why it's very important to be Mm anti-racist. You know, people think, oh, yeah, don't get it. But I think whether we get it or not, because I don't get it, it's like neither here nor there. It's that this group of people, hopefully they're a minority, but they're so impassioned Mm -hmm. that, you know, I say Sainsbury's comes out as the winner in all of this because Sainsbury's consistently like on their social media has been taking um, an anti-racist stance Mm -hmm. you know they came out and they said our goal is to represent a multicultural Britain I'm not even a big Sainsbury's (laughs) shopper me and my husband we had to go to Sainsbury's this weekend (laughs) you know yeah I'm really proud of Sainsbury's for taking that stand and now apparently Tesco's had a black family in their ad and they edited them out no Uh, they had a black couple in their ad so the the actress who was in this Tesco ad was posting about it on her Instagram
1: oh my god
0: and showing the outtakes so you've got some brands that are stepping away from it and then you've got Sainsbury's that's like oh no this is this is Sainsbury's like it or lump it It's wild because,
1: you know, you mentioned you've got to hope that these people are a minority. And obviously we do hope that. But isn't it mad when you could be ashamed of being racist? (laughs) Now people are like, oh, I'm I'm feeling angry that I've seen a black family on television. So I'm going to I'm going to post about it on social Mm. media so that people know how I feel.
0: But good post. I think it's important for us. You know, I think when you create an environment where people can't, express themselves it leads to like more resentment right so I do believe in freedom of speech so I don't have an issue with people posting what their thoughts are I think if anything at least it shows us what we're dealing with and there were a lot of memes on you know in the internet is always the winner um there were a lot of memes saying wow like you're so angry that there's a black family at Christmas but you know all these talking carrots (laughs)
1: you can relate to them (laughs) yeah
0: you've got no issues when it's a talking carrot yeah and so yeah I think it's really important because I think if it's not visible it's really easy for us to think oh we don't have a problem
1: yeah I get you I think as well there's a further kind of argument to be made there because freedom of speech is not freedom of consequence but Mm -hmm. I think that what you see a lot of the time is that there's actually zero consequence whatsoever and the idea that Tesco's then, oh, just in post-production, removed the black couple that they had in their ad. It's like, well, what incentive are we actually giving people to be to be ashamed of being racist or bigoted or narrow-minded? You know, if it's just, oh, you say it and life goes
0: on. Mm, yeah, exactly. So Tesco, shame on you. Mm, I don't know um, Tesco anyway. I don't go to Tesco anyway and I won't be going there anytime soon <laughs> one other thing that happened this week that I found okay there's too much that has gone on this week that's it's going on in my head right the Prissy Patel and the bullying situation what are your thoughts on that
1: mm-hmm. I think the thing is it's almost like Pretty Patel has told us who she is. Mm-hmm. And so when something like the bullying comes out and people are going, oh, yeah, and this bullying accusation, what I think is, yeah, but are you, re- are you really surprised? Mm. Are you actually surprised? Or are you just like, this is just another excuse to talk about her? Because, Jesus, I mm-hmm. could have told you that long before anything came out. She's mm-hmm. a bully to work with because of... The way she, you know, the way that she presents herself when she's talking about um, families from lower socioeconomic status, like when she was talking about refugees, it, you know that she is, excuse my language, a complete dickhead. So why would we assume that that stops when it comes to people who work in close proximity with her?
0: hmm. There's a book I'm reading and it's called The Dictator's Handbook. And it's all about power, how to acquire power and how to keep power. And it's really about understanding who your stakeholders are and the people who are her stakeholders, Tory voters, Boris Johnson, um, the people who are her stakeholders, they don't care about this stuff. Mm. And essentially, this book is about how, you know, people in power, politicians, business leaders, how they get away with a lot of bad behavior. And the regular people are like, oh, my God, this is so shocking. Well, how come that person is still in power? Because you're not their stakeholder.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, yeah, it's the shock value. And then maybe it sells a couple of papers. But like, yeah, no one cares. I just looked at that like, wow, this is such a classic example of no one caring. And if anything, I think she came out on top because she was basically like, sorry, not sorry. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, when you talk about her stakeholders and it ties it together quite nicely, the people who are, who are her stakeholders are the people who are furious about the Sainsbury's ad but mm-hmm. tell themselves that they're not racist because they don't have a problem with Pretty Patel.
0: Yeah, exactly. Those types of people. And I and I just looked at that and I said, you know what, Pretty Patel? All the Tory politicians went onto Twitter to say she's so nice. <laughs> Embarrassing. But no, she right. came out. She came out on top. When you think about power, she really came out on top because she was like, sorry, not sorry. I'm going to do what I want to do. And her party just gave her a high five.
1: It's a lazy exercise, right? To speak in such broad generalizations. But I do think you see it a lot in left versus right politics, Mm. because I think that the left tear themselves to pieces looking for the moral high ground, looking to be like completely morally resplendent. Whereas the right, tend to unite towards a common goal.
0: The common goal of winning. Yeah,
1: exactly. So they don't get bogged down in the minutiae of, and again, to clarify, with regards to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, I absolutely agree it needs to be weeded out, it needs to be eradicated. Taking Jeremy Corbyn and the particular anti-Semitism argument out of the the equation in this instance, Labour has a track record of doing this historically it's like oh let's get caught in the weeds let's get caught in the absolute minutiae of this situation making sure that we're you know completely politically correct and everything we've dotted every i crossed every t and then you've got the tories being like well broadly speaking the Mm. aim is to win and we'll do whatever we have to do to get to that that point yeah
0: exactly i do recommend this book guys the dictator's handbook it really has me looking at things Differently,
1: mm, I can imagine. I'll check that out.
0: I was looking at Pretty Patel, I was like, Yes, Queen, because mm. she just knows how to move within her organization and she knows how to keep power. It just depends on your goal in life. If you want to affect change, you do need some power.
1: <laughs> there is a really interesting study, and I will try and find it, but it basically talks about the reason that minorities, from an ethnic perspective, and women, you know, so like from a gender perspective as well, would get attracted to right wing politics, which invariably do not advocate for their best interests. And it's because you are such an anomaly in that situation that you progress rapidly through the ranks. So Ben Carson for the Republican Party, they do not have that many black men. So when Ben Carson was like, yeah, all right, He rose rapidly through the ranks of the Republican Party. It's like, oh, here you go. You're a presidential candidate. (laughs) And I think that to a degree that's understandable because I think what you have is a situation where so many barriers to success exist in society. If it's the case that, yeah, you might be a bit of a, a poster child for a particular cause, but if at the end of the day, success and winning are your objectives, why would you not go the path of least resistance.
0: And I was thinking about it from a race and gender perspective with Priti Patel. And, yeah, I do think that she's able to leverage Mm -hmm. those things to her advantage because right now she is the only one. She's like the UK's first woman of Mm (laughs) colour. If we were to have a first minister, like, she's it, right? So um, it's so dark, but it, it is what it is. If you go on moralising to people, no one's interested.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so true. And I think that while it wouldn't be necessarily the path that I would want to go down, I don't actually know, do I? Because I've not been presented with that opportunity. <laughs> and also, as a white woman, and this has been discussed before, but as a white woman, I will encounter some barriers, but I won't encounter the same amount. My mm. barriers to success are not as vast as someone like Pretty Patel has actually encountered in her career. Maybe she did think, well, listen, I am mean, Tories have said that I can be front and centre, actually, and that they're going to rally for me regardless of what I do.
0: Yeah, I read a, an article about this on the weekend and I can't remember where it's from. I mean, I don't want to dive too deep into politics, but Labour are screwed. Like, Labour, it's, it's a wrap. <laughs> like, it's a complete wrap, unfortunately. Let's play some violins. <laughs> It's over. 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 Yeah, let's play them out. It's over, it's over. But guys, super excited to introduce you to our special guest. Yes,
1: so really excited to welcome Bella Davies Heard to the podcast today. Bella is a transformational career and wellness coach, believing that work should work for us and not against us. Bella, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you guys so much for inviting me on. I am delighted to be here. Uh, big fan of the podcast. So yeah, excited to get chatting.
1: I'm really interested to learn a little bit more about your journey into career coaching because it's a premise that I wasn't really familiar. I thought that, I guess, only super, super high-powered wealthy people had career coaching. And so the idea that even someone like myself could could have a career coach is a relatively recent revelation so I'd love to know a little bit more about how you got into it and what was the kind of the the passion driver for you
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my background is in communications. So the last 10 years or so, um, I've worked for PR agencies across the UK looking after purpose-led brands, UN agencies, philanthropic foundations. And it was really that kind of purpose work, like it absolutely filled my soul. The more senior I got, the more I was, without me realising it now, again, looking back mentoring people, coaching people in my everyday job, both from, you know, my teams, but also clients. But I reached a bit of a, I think plateau is probably the right word, because for me, I wasn't miserable. I had some incredible opportunities. But I kept thinking to myself, there's another chapter. What is going on in my life? There's something I'm not doing. There's something I'm not exploring. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I had quite a, what is it tra- is it, can I want to say traumatic, I had quite a big breakup about six months before my 30th birthday. And I kind of thought that that would be the catalyst for my next chapter. I thought something big would change in my life and it would all fall into place. It doesn't. <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> you think it's gonna, you think, oh, hold on, you know, getting getting divorced at 29, hon, that's going to change your life. It does. But not in the ways you think. It's not this big rewrite. It's not this turning the page. And I kept waiting for life to happen to me. I was like, I'm waiting for the penny to drop. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting for this exciting chapter where I really kind of become myself, if that makes sense. And I was chatting to a friend and I was talking to her about all these things I like doing. And I thought maybe I should go and be, I should retrain and become like a psychotherapist. That sounds really smart. That sounds like people are going to respect me. It's going to be wicked. I can do that. I like people. She's a mental health nurse. And so she sat me down. She's like, these are all the reasons you are not going to be good at it. These are (laughs) all the reasons that you will not enjoy it. I was not swearing. peed off. I was furious And I left her house feeling really grumpy about it. And she'd said something in passing. She's like, you should be a coach. You should just go and be a life coach. And I heard life coach and I heard someone spouting off random advice, inspirational quotes on Instagram. It wasn't like a career choice. It was just like something you do for fun. And I was quite offended, I'll be honest. And I went home and I thought, just Google it. Like, let's not jump to conclusions. And I Googled it. And within about 10 minutes, everything fit into place. It was one of those moments of real clarity where you just think to yourself, oh, I like that. I don't think I have all the answers. Well, coaches don't have the answers. We help you get the answers. I feel that everyone has a new chapter to write or a new journey to go on. I believe strongly in kind of self-led self-development. I care about people's happiness. And it all just made a lot of sense to me. And I'd say within about six weeks, I'd found a coaching school. It was really important to me to be certified and trained properly. Uh, It's an unregulated industry. So you don't currently have to be certified to call yourself a life coach, uh, which I don't agree with. So I found a school that I really, really loved. And I'd say the first weekend, thankfully, back then it was all in-person training, which works better for me. First weekend. And I was the best way I can put it is I was completely in love with it. I felt myself for the first time in a really, really long time. And it brought me, it properly brought me alive. I was just a nicer person to be around. Work was better because I was bringing like the best bits of myself to it. It helped my career in in communications at that time uh, really excel because of what I was learning as a coach. But I didn't want to be a career coach. I knew I didn't want to be a relationship coach. But I thought career coaches, because I did consider it, I thought career coaches, you know, when you're in sixth form and it's always for me, it's a sixth form biology teacher and they sit you down and they're like, here are your career paths. You can be a teacher. You can be a doctor. Not you. You can't be a doctor, but other people can be a doctor. You can go and do this. And it was all very, these are the jobs you can have that you'd be all right at and that pay the bills. So I kind of thought it was kind of unsexy. I thought career coaching would be boring and kind of prosaic. Or on the flip side, all about promotions and pay rises and hustle and climbing a ladder. And none of that really felt right to me.
0: So what's wrong with hustle and trying to climb the ladder? What about that did not appeal?
2: I think at that time, what didn't appeal to me is it didn't feel genuine to what I wanted to kind of achieve in the coaching world. It didn't feel genuine to a kind of emerging mission that I have. There is nothing wrong with wanting to climb the career ladder. And there is nothing wrong with being an ambitious woman who has certain goals and certain steps. But I thought that that's all career coaches did. And that didn't chime with me because I think career is something so incredibly individual. And I don't think it should be up to someone like me to say, this is what you should be doing. Jules, Phoebe, you should be aiming for a promotion in six months, you should be climbing this ladder, you should be earning this much. If that's what you want to do as a career coach now, awesome, bring it on, let's go. But back then, I thought that's all you did. As a career coach, I had a very narrow perspective on it. Mm. So it surprised me quite a lot that I'm where I am now.
0: And the reason why I asked that question is because it reminds me of when I joined the Women's Network at work and I joined the Women's Network because I believe in pay equality, gender parity. And I thought, wow, this would be a great community to get involved in. And then I joined Women's Network and then I'm told, oh, my goal is for as many of you to get promoted as possible this year. And I was like, oh, why do we keep focusing on that when we need to be focusing on equality. And then it's just been so interesting for me um, in terms of my own journey in the network, because what I realized is we need people who are compassionate to pursue power. Mm. We need people who believe in equality to be willing to get involved in the politics uh, and to thrive. And so that's why I asked you that question, because I think sometimes people do feel either, I'm authentic, or I'm political. And what I've learned is that there is an intersection of those two things. And that's been quite eye opening for me, because I kind of compartmentalized or separated those things for a long time.
2: I think that's really interesting, because what that points to for me, and particularly in a kind of in a corporate setting, is you can be authentically political, you can be political, and to your point, Jules, you know, work towards the things that you care about. And sometimes that does mean navigating internal structures and internal systems so you can get to a point where you can change those structures and change those systems. So I'm certainly not anti the climb. I just think that should be something that the individual really determines for themselves and looks at what their motivations behind that really are.
1: I think there's an interesting component. I was talking to my husband about this during the weekend. We were out for a walk. He was saying, you know, if I I live my life over here I think could be a real turning point in my career when I was 20 I would have just done x and I was saying I don't think it would make any difference I think if you went back or if you lived your life over again you could only do it knowing what you know now for it for there to be any different outcome because I think that a lot of the time particularly in your 20s although I can absolutely appreciate that it extends past that you wait to be recognized because you have lived your life in this whole model up until now of in school, you're doing your work and it gets handed in and it gets graded and it gets given back to you. And it's the teacher's job to be correcting your essays or correcting your exams or whatever. Um, so there's a certain amount of organic noticing that goes on in that regard. And then I think a lot of the time, certainly for myself, you're in the corporate environment and you're waiting to be recognized. And you're thinking, well, I know I did. It's not like gonna- say anything to me and so I can imagine that in a lot of ways I mean I can imagine in general a good mentor in that instance is so meaningful but when you are working with your clients is there one kind of common denominator that you think yeah this is something that inarguably people struggle with
2: that is a great question right now people are struggling with sense of real frustration at what they perceive as their life being on pause and particularly in the career space if you're looking at corporate the more kind of corporate environments promotions pay rises the kind of traditional metrics of progression and success and to your point Phoebe that's kind of what we're used to and you do in your 20s that's what you chase In your 30s is a bit of a shift, but I'll get to to that. But I am seeing quite a a lot of frustration. If I'm not getting promoted, why am I doing this? I need a pay rise. I need this. I want that. Why is this not happening for me? And it's particularly difficult for people who are probably on the cusp of being ready for that or being kind of handed that at the beginning of the year thanks to their work and that all being kind of completely derailed. Again, I'm speaking quite generally, but in a lot of industries... Certainly in the comms industry and creative industries, that's what we're seeing. So a lot of frustration and a lot of progress and progression is only measured by the promotion and the pay rise. So there's a bit of a kind of area of disconnect there. People are struggling to see what progression means if it doesn't mean the traditional ways of of acknowledgement. And I would say that if your 20s are about kind of waiting to be acknowledged, your 30s tend to be, and again, this is what I've seen with my clients, more about forging out the paths for yourself and worrying less about what other people are giving you. So it's a, it's a little bit less about the ladders. It's more about, usually with people I work with, the change, the career crossroads, the what do I really want to do? You know, I'm X years old, how do I want to spend the next 30 years of my life? In your 20s, I don't know how, I'd love to hear how you guys feel about this. But so many of my kind of peers and contemporaries, we fell into our jobs. Absolutely. You needed a job. You got a job. You went with something that made sense. And you took probably the first one that came your way. I graduated in 2008. Not fun graduating into a recession. I took the first (laughs) job I could get, let's be honest. And you fall into it and you don't take a step back. And then you're on the wheel. And it is, how do I make this worthwhile? I've hustled, I've I've grinded, I've worked so hard. You you have to make your 20s kind of make sense retrospectively. And as you get older, I think there are real opportunities, not only age, it's also, I think, about stage. And it's about things like the pandemic and things that have happened this year that make you sit there and go, actually, hold on. Maybe I can take a step back and a step up and just think a little bit more intentionally about what I want to be doing.
1: God, that has resonated with me so much because now I, I really love my job and I'm good at it, but I 100% fell into it. And I made a joke last week on the podcast that every time I, I reference an anecdote, I end up saying me and my husband were talking. But obviously, as you've noted, we're in a pandemic. There's not really anybody else for me to speak to on a daily basis. But my husband said to me the other day, it's funny because you don't have much of a chip on your shoulder about the fact that you studied psychology, because most people who study psychology end up being like, no, it is a science. And I was like, oh, that wasn't even an option for me, because in Ireland, psychology is A, categorized as an arts subject, and B, of the 16 people in my class, five of us did psychology, because God love her, but our guidance counselor couldn't guide you to the door. So it was like, Mm -hmm. when you mentioned doctor, teacher, whatever, doctors and teachers were not on the radar. It was like, why don't you try a nice psychology degree and see where you end up? And one of us has gone on to do the additional, whatever, six qualifications Mm -hmm. that she needs to work in psychology. Everybody else, like, I went and worked in recruitment and I worked those 12-hour days and I cried in the toilets and then I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is it. I guess I'm having a good time. Like... It's insane how little guidance you're given post that A-level or leaving cert or whatever it is you're doing. You're very much so thrown in the deep end. And as you say, trying to rationalize because you don't want it to have all been for nothing. Absolutely. And I think that that's, a, that's quite a tricky path because also, as as you've noticed, so I'm just kind of saying your, your words back to you, but the metrics of success tend to be the things like, Marriage, babies, mortgage. And you're kind of thinking, well, what's the quickest way for me to get to those then? You have to be, I think, incredibly secure in yourself to have worked out those issues in your 20s in order to be able to say, "Mm, actually, no, that's not whatever the phrase is,
0: scratching that itch for me. When I was 26, I was like, all right, but I'm going to Nigeria and I was working for a startup in Lagos. And I would always be like, yeah. Or you know in London the biggest achievement people have is having a mortgage <laughs> and like here I am on the edge living life <laughs> so now that I'm in my 30s I'm like actually I see the value in that <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm very lucky because I never I was never benchmarking myself and what my achievements what I considered achievement against what other people were doing yeah. I was like, this is what I want to do. And I went and I did it. You know, and I'm very grateful that, like, I basically spent my 20s running around Africa, Mm -hmm. which is what I wanted to do at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was completely insecure. (laughs) Like, it was not wise for people looking in on the outside. But, you know, I I never wanted to be someone that had regrets. Mm -hmm. But what I did realise when I was, like, 29, 30, was that I wanted to be a bit more introspective So I watched a documentary about the Mossad on Netflix when you're being assessed to be a Mossad agent one of the things they do is test your fearlessness and if you are too fearless you fail because then you can't identify risk and I realized in my 20s I was so fearless I couldn't identify risk like I'm not Nigerian I got offered a job in Lagos had a bomb leaving do, I looked like a bag of money. I still look at those and <laughs> think, wow, how things have changed. But yeah, so it was interesting watching that, that documentary. And there were a few other things that I did where I said, you know what, Jules, uh, this appetite for risk is really cool, but you're going to have to be a bit more mindful if these risks are gonna pay off. Mm. So that's something that I did, kind of change my approach to life.
2: So I feel like I'm the almost like in terms of timeline, polar opposite of that. And it's actually one of the things that when we were working together, Jules, that I loved about you and actually took a lot of inspiration from was how fearless you had been in your 20s. Because obviously we talked about a lot of stuff and just seeing that, you know, you did what you wanted to do. You, you knew what you wanted. You went out, and you got it and you took opportunities and you had experiences. And I, I'd followed a tick list. You know, I married my first boyfriend. I was saving for a house and a baby. I was doing a job that I was really, really good at, but maybe wasn't stretching me enough, wasn't taking any risks. And now I'm like, oh, actually, I need to be more fearless. I need to take more risks. I need to try new things. So I find it really interesting how we all kind of get to different parts of the human experience at different times, depending on who we are.
0: Yeah. I really
1: want to ask you a question about that, Bella, because you mentioned maybe getting to that fearlessness a little bit later. Mm -hmm. But to leave a career that, as you said, you knew you were really good at, and then to be like, no, I'm going all in for this completely different thing. In, as you've said, like an unregulated industry and something, an industry that is gathering a lot of traction, I think, because more and more people are seeing it as like, a really kind of fundamental component in terms of helping them get to where they want to be, but in the same breath, you know, kind of uncharted territory. So was there an aha moment or was it kind of death by a thousand cuts that you were like, you know what, I've been dipping a toe and dipping a toe and dipping a toe. It's time to go.
2: So, yes, so I should say I am still in that world. Mm -hmm. So I'm currently doing both. Right but there wasn't a hard moment where I realized that I needed to stop working 80 hour weeks for other people. And Mm -hmm. that I hate saying it like this, but it's the only genuine way I can say it. This calling that I have for coaching was getting deprioritized. It was getting treated like a, like a side project. I would kind of dismiss it if people spoke to me about it. And after a while, I realized, why am I dismissing it so much? And I realized that's because I was a little bit and I use this word carefully because I've done a lot of work on it now. But I was a little bit ashamed of my lack of action. And it all stemmed from fear. It all stemmed from I'm so good at my day job that what if I'm not good at this? What if I don't excel? There is no one to give me a pat on the back. There is no validation from, you know, a holding company in America who can give me a promotion and a pay rise. It's me. It's on me. And it's on my talent. It's on my skill. It's on my mental fortitude. Everything was on me. And that pressure, I think, got got a lot for me. And so I just, I was like completely stuck in inaction. So I was, I was kind of nibbling around the edges. And I think I was going out for a walk. And it was as simple as, I think I was listening to a podcast. And they were talking about, you know, what's your what's your superpower? Which is one of my favorite questions ever. Well, you know, what's your superpower? What can you do that no one else can do? And all I could think is, oh, I'm really, really good at listening to people. And all I could think is, if I wake up in 10 years time and I haven't done this, I will regret it forever. Whereas if I take a jump and it doesn't work out for some reason and I have to do something else, I have to retrain, I go back, you know, into kind of comms forever, whatever it might be, I will regret it for the rest of my life. It was that kind of stark for me. And that's when I knew that it had to stop being, you know, fifth sixth seventh eighth priority down my list but it took a while it took a while I've been coaching for two and a half years and it's only been in the last year that I have even started to talk about it more with with friends or post about it on socials or you know have it as a discussion point I was still kind of hiding that part of myself
0: I know so many people like this where they work on things they don't want to discuss it Mm -hmm. and I'm at the point now where unless people are really explicit with me about what they're doing I'm not bothering myself because I find like I'm so invested in the success of the people around me that I want to know what they're up to so I can help move them along in that journey. But most people don't want to share what they're doing until like they get to a a certain point, I guess, because I'm someone who's very like, this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm sharing to bring other people along and then everybody else is so hush hush. And I guess that's just their approach. But then it's just something I've noticed. And I find it so jarring. But it's funny with you, because I was with a friend and I said, I'm looking for a career coach. And then he was like a friend of mine. Like she's training to be a career coach, Jules, you know, reach out to her. because She could be a great person to speak to. And then that's how I met you. So you must have communicated it to someone for it to basically land in my lap at brunch
2: <laughs> yeah so it, it's a bit of a journey and I think I think it something you said to me just really stuck with me I just scribbled it down here you said that you like investing in other people's success and I think when people and I say this again I see this in clients I saw this in myself previously when you're not talking about what you really want to be doing when you're not talking about your passions it's because you're not investing in your own success you're not backing yourself for success You're not telling people what you're doing, because firstly, then they're going to hold you account and you're going to have to follow through. You're going to have to sit there and go, yes, I love this. And yes, I'm going to effing do it. And the second thing is, if you don't try, you can't ever be very disappointed. So if you don't go all in on something, your dream can remain a dream. It can stay comfortable. It can stay as that comfort blanket. It can stay as that one day my life's going to be amazing. It stays in the distance and that keeps us comfortable and keeps us safe. I think in terms of shouting about it, in terms of talking to people about it, my personal journey was like this. So when I started coaching, which is when our mutual friend referred you to me, I was like, this is wicked. I love it. I'm so good at this. And I hate saying that, but that is how I felt. I felt that, yeah, I've got this. I I know what I'm doing here. And it was kind of a year later. It was that middle year where I felt really consumed by my day job. I felt like I didn't have the headspace. And I chose to, I can look back and and admit this, I chose to deprioritize it because I was so scared of going all in, which is why I think that's something interesting when I see it in clients. I have a good frame of reference for how how they're feeling and how they're thinking. I bring a lot of compassion to the approach I have in coaching because I've been there and I know how scary it can be.
1: That really makes me laugh because particularly when you just said there, you know, you get worried that you're going to be held to account And I think it's um, Margaret Atwood who has that quote, men are afraid that women will laugh at them, women are afraid that men will kill them, right? I'm afraid of both. Don't kill me, don't laugh at me. I literally, and, you know, Jules, when you talk about that thing of people kind of moving in silence, I have such a fear of saying things and it not working out and then someone being able to say you know, she said she was going to do such and such a thing, but turned out she wasn't very good at it. And the idea of being so captive to other people's expectations, I guess I have another question for you around this, Bella, because I, as part of my MBA program, was given one free career coach session, which I really, really enjoyed. But Mm -hmm. I don't make any secret of the fact that I've struggled with my mental health in the past. And I've also had CBT and therapy and you know a couple of other engagements with counselors and therapists and things like that and I almost felt like that really heightened my experience of the career coach because I was able to go in and almost as soon as we started be able to say I am incredibly anxious a lot of the things I'm anxious about have never had a chance to happen but I am trying my best to override them I'm very fatalistic but this is, you know, separate to all of that. This is where I want to be in my career. I want to be doing this stuff. I, I I, know my strengths. I also know my weaknesses. And following that, I spoke to a couple of people. I spoke to a friend of mine whose girlfriend had had a very poor experience of career coaching. And he said to me, do you think it helped that you had, had you know, normal therapy beforehand? And I was thinking, Absolutely. Because I was able to be like, listen, don't worry about that, by the way, that insecurity isn't rooted in anything, because I've already explored that. And I know that it's not. It's a self sabotaging technique that for some reason I use. I had a very happy childhood, like this kind of thing. so. So I wonder what your thoughts are around that. When you were moving into this avenue, how much work did you have to do on yourself, in terms of maybe past compartmentalizing that you had done? And, you know, hiding things so that you didn't have to be kind of fully accountable, but also just, you know, overriding that fear and overriding that shame. Was that something that was very conscious work on your part?
2: The short answer is hell yes. It was absolutely (laughs) conscious. I also make no secret of the fact that I have struggled with my own mental health. I am in therapy it's a critical kind of component of my life. I'm now in a point where I love it. I'm two years deep, which is the longest I've ever been with a therapist, because usually I just roll my eyes and think they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You can analyze that one another time. <laughs> I'm so I'm a big, I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm also a really, really big fan of knowing where therapy starts and coaching ends. It's something really obviously this is very particular to clients I work with but I have a very open dialogue with all my clients about whether or not they are in therapy or whether they're having other interventions if that's relevant for them but I think kind of putting that aside and putting that apart I talk about my coaching or I used to talk about my coaching business in therapy a lot because it was tied up my my things about visibility you know I do have when it comes to coaching used to have anyway, shocking imposter syndrome, it still comes up and you have your tools to deal with it. That's kind of also what coaching does for you as a, as an individual, it gives you a bit of a toolbox to cope with things. But yeah, absolutely. I think your experience of knowing whether or not coaching is the right avenue for you, is that going to get you to where you need to be? That has to be a super conscious decision. I think coaching can be for everyone, but you have to know why you want coaching, but you also, you have to find the right coach for you. You know, some coaches are more kind of therapeutic coaches and do a combination, obviously, with the right qualifications. Others use things like hypnosis or emotional freedom technique. It's all about figuring out what's going to work for you because all coaches are different. All career coaches are different. Relationship coaches are different. And everyone brings to it their own experiences and their own ways of interpreting frameworks and philosophies and things like that. But I'm glad you had a positive experience. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. If you knew that no one could laugh at you, no matter what the outcome, what would you try? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question.
1: Bella, I feel like the Mr. Krabs meme from SpongeBob SquarePants. Were the real-
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, hon, I'm a coach. This is what we do. We <laughs> ask questions.
1: Um. I always know that whatever I do, it will be people facing because when we talk about superpower, I know that that is mine. I know that I'm good with people because I know that I'm interested in people. And so when I think about it, I'm always like, I want to be working in some kind of collaborative innovation where I am growing in tandem with the people that I'm working with, but it tends to be in a kind of a client facing position. Do you know what I mean? But I think that the the possibilities are endless when you like working with people. There are so many different intersections in that regard. And I think I know, you know, the the pillars or my value pillars, as it were, will always be family and security and things like that. And um, a lot of the metrics that I thought would never matter to me, like I never thought I'd get married. I never thought that I'd want children because I just didn't really care about those things. And then I met my husband and we did get married. And now I am actually for the first time in my life, thinking, yes, I actually would like to have children as well. And I wonder sometimes if it's to do with small town mentality, because I grew up in a place where everyone is very like, not knowing your business necessarily in a negative way, but the sense of community is so strong. I don't think it's only to do with that, because I think, you know, a large part of our listener base is liberal millennial women who tend to live in in cities and imposter syndrome is off the charts with them as well so it's obviously not just for um, by virtue of growing up in Ennis County Clare with a population of 35,000 people but I do often think like oh I want to and I'm sure that there will be a lot of our listeners who say the same thing a lot of it comes down to me um, of other people's external perception of what success is so I want to do well for myself but I also want other people to know I'm doing well. And I wonder how much of that needs to be removed before you can actually achieve true success.
2: Now, that is a question. (laughs) It is incredibly freeing. It's terrifying, but it's incredibly freeing when your success cannot be quantified by other people. Mm -hmm. You have to find other ways to quantify it for yourself. But it's, it's really, really freeing to think I hate this question. It's such a comms question. What does success look like for me? Mm -hmm. But it's true. It's like, what what does success feel like? Forget what success looks like. What does success feel like? What is that going to mean for your life? How will you know you are successful? And it is completely, completely valid. And it's really important because I'm really not one for like shoving my own opinions down people's throat when it comes to coaching. But it's really valid if success feels like those promotions and those pay rises and that external validation and that structure, if that's what works for you and that's what makes your life, you know, when I talk about career wellness, that's what it's about. It's about your job, making your life better. If that's what works for you, if that's what brings you alive, then I'm all for it. But for those, for people who find that, A struggle for people that that doesn't resonate with, I think figuring out your own success metrics is one of the most powerful things you can do. And I think one of the first things you can do if you are considering, you know, whether it's a pivot, a change, just adapting how you work in the same industry or job, what's it going to feel like when you're successful?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: If you start there, it's a really good internal barometer to kind of guide you forward with what your next step should be. And that's usually my job.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the key takeaways for me when I was doing coaching with you was that I had so many assumptions. I want to do this. I want to do that. In order for me to be given this, I need to do that. And you would always say to me, but why? Why do you need to do those things? Everything you've done is more than enough. And that was such a penny drop moment. Like, why do I have to do X to even ask for Y? You know, and I think so many of us have all these assumptions in our mind That lead us to not asking for what we want or maybe not thinking, oh, when I have this, then I'll focus on achieving this. And I think that really holds people back. So one of the things I do now is like, yeah, I want this. Why not? You need to tell me why I don't deserve it. I'm not going to create that barrier for myself. Right. What I want why can't I have it okay great and it's been causing a lot of problems (laughs) what's going on tell me no 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 not problems for me but problems for other people because I'm there (laughs) like oh but why not everyone around me is like that I realized because obviously I'm in a male dominated team Mm. industry all the lads are like this is what I want this is why I want it why can't I have it Mm -hmm. and I said I'm just going to do what they do but but here's the
2: thing I think there is such a small percentage of people that ask the question, why not? And that is the, one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself. I was speaking to a client the other day, and we were talking about reducing hours at work and requesting a reduced a reduced workload in the new year, obviously with a reduction in pay and all that jazz. And she immediately started telling me that she'd spoken to a couple of friends about it. And the friends were basically saying, oh, you should absolutely ask. They're never going to let you do it. This is why they're not going to let you do it. They're never going to let you. So by the end of that conversation, she'd gone from having a plan to just having doubts and to already talking herself out of even saying it. But sometimes you do just have to stop and reframe and go, okay, why, but why not? Let's mm. get really, really crystal clear on this. Why can't I have that? Is it working for you, Jules? Is, are things going oh, well? Oh, yeah, I'm
0: doing great. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what I've realised in terms of my career and life in general, but specifically when it comes to... Um, career transitioning, pivoting or anything to do with your career your friends are not your actual friends it's not your mates right your friends are your coach are your mentors your sponsors these are who your friends are and what caused me so much difficulty in the past was thinking that my friends should be that support network for me yes So I moved to Lagos, I went to go work for a startup, I came back to London, and I was thinking that my friends would be supporting me through that transition, like giving me advice, encouraging me, half of them are moving in silence anyway, so I was like, I can't actually learn anything from you guys, and here I was constantly pouring into people Mm -hmm. and thinking, oh, now it's my turn to get poured into, and there was no one. And so what I've realized that's really, really crucial, and that's why I'm a big fan of coaching in general. Like if you want to improve in anything, you need to have a coach. And a lot of the time people will say, I want to achieve this. I want to do this. And then I say to them, oh, I know a coach and they don't follow up. And that's why I'm like, yeah, I don't take you seriously because you're not willing to actually make that investment in yourself. And that's what I think really differentiates people But it's my willingness to have made those investments in myself. And I've just got that dividend right now. So part of it is jarring because everybody says, (laughs) I want to do this. I want to do that. You guys don't move. We have a career coach on the podcast. How many of you are going to go and follow Bella on Instagram?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true, actually, Bella. This is a great chance to give your Instagram and contact information a shout out. Oh, thanks. I will
2: do. Can I just... Just something that Jules said there just really resonated with me again is it's where you put your energy. If you are willing to put your energy into finding whether it's your purpose, your mission or where your focus wants to be. And similarly, you know, when you think about the friendships that you're you're pouring energy into, be really mindful, always be mindful, particularly when it comes to career. I completely agree with you, Jules. Support network is not your friend's. Your support network also needs to be people that you are working with, needs to be your peers. They need to be people who have semi-different jobs in the same industry. Those are your people, that's your coven, that's your go-to in those days where you do have bad imposter syndrome or where you just need a little check on something or a bit of confidence boost. And so often we confuse our friends with our everything else. Mm -hmm. In the same way you can't expect a romantic partner to be everything for you, you can't expect your friends to be your guidance counsellors as well because it just nine times out of ten, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But if you want more gems like that, <laughs> you can come to Instagram. Yeah, it's chapter two coaching over on the over on the Insta. Always, always happy to chat to people, love hearing people's kind of career quandaries and questions and things like that. So always come and feel free. Yeah.
1: And I guess as just a note on that, Bella, I'm guessing that there will be people listening to this particular episode who haven't thought about coaching before, who don't know the ins and outs and the kind of the idiosyncrasies of it. Is it fair to say that you work with clients to build programs around them and the frequency with which they can meet and everything? Because I think sometimes people are daunted at the idea of what they don't know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I tend to work with people one-on-one over about 12 weeks. Each program is very much tailored to what that individual wants to achieve. So a lot of the time and current clients I work with, it is about people who have kind of let their jobs take over their lives and are kind of ruining different parts of their lives and they're quite unhappy with it. So we, we work together to kind of redraw their career path and get them on the right track. Others, it is about a career change or a career pivot. But each time I work really, really closely with those individuals to figure out what's going to work best for them. I'm not the coach for everyone. I think it's really, really important that you have the right chemistry, you've got the right dynamic. If I think I can't help someone because it's outside of my skill set or the area that I'm focusing on, Integrity is my number one value and so you know it has to go both ways in terms of you know who you work with and who wants to work with you as well.
0: I have a question because it is an investment and with everything going on I could understand people not being in the position to invest in career coaching. Are there any resources that you think people can tap into if they're considering career coaching but they might not be in the position to make that financial investment?
2: Yeah absolutely so I think I mean, absolutely agree with you. It is an investment. And I'm not one of those people who kind of sits there and says, if you really want it, you find the money because we're in a one of those pandemic. <laughs> I know you are. I know, I know you are. are. I'm
0: one of those people. You are. Right? But we move what are the free resources we move the first thing is actually just figuring out what you want career coaching for
2: so I don't I don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily say there's like a bank of things that work for everyone but I think it's figuring out what it is about your particular situation that you're not very happy with so if you are just feeling like you need to be stretched a little bit more and you need to have a little bit more of a kind of better time at work than books my one of my favorite books is The Discomfort Zone by Farastore, I think it's brilliant, and it's got some really actionable. You know, she's an editor; she's not a coach, but there's some really actionable things in there that are the same kind of things I um, suggest to my clients. If you're having problems with different personalities at work, particularly as we're all working from home, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I've seen a lot of personality clashes coming out to the fore because everyone's got a heightened sense of stress. There is a book that I am obsessed with called The Four Tendencies by Gretchen Rubin.
0: I recommend this book to everyone all the time. And then I keep saying, I can't remember who told me about this book. (laughs) Guys, read that book.
2: (laughs) It is fantastic. And there's a quiz you can do online if you want to. It's a free quiz you can do online as well. Um, Just check out Gretchen Rubin. She's wicked. And that for me actually transformed the way I coach, but it also transformed my comms job and my friendships. Um, So those are the kind of two places I'd start. But if you are ready to invest in yourself, you know, there are lots of different coaches out there and I would just recommend finding one for you and seeing if they offer taster sessions and see what, what the deal is.
0: And what I'd also recommend, if you are one of those people that's looking at a promotion, right? Maybe for budget reasons, you know, your promotion has been put on hold, but you can go to your manager and say, I think I would benefit from coaching and get your organization to sponsor you because you're worth it. So I would consider that as an approach as well.
2: I'd say that's a great thing. And one very quick build on that is think about what other things you might need. Do you want a training course elsewhere? Do you want to go and spend time in another department? They're going to want to keep you. So if you're in that position, your employer wants to keep you. And if they can't give you the promotion and pay rise that you deserve, think about what else they can give you to develop your sense of self, develop your career and also keep you happy.
0: Yeah. Bella, thank you so much. We need to have you back on the show because I feel there's still so much for us to discuss.
2: I think that we could literally
1: do a series on this. Because <laughs> I think that people are going to be so interested in it. It was so great to meet you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And no, I'm sure you will hear from me on chapter
2: two over on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved every minute of it. So thank you both. And thank you, Jules, for being one of the clients that really made me see that career coaching is where I wanted to be. So thank oh. you.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at Jewel Phoebe. Bye, guys. Bye.